Welcome to Calvary Napa. I'm Pastor Rob, the uh, lead pastor here. If you're uh, visiting with us for the first time today, we are so glad that you have decided to come and worship the Lord with us here. If you're not visiting for the first time, love you too. Glad you came back. And so uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? All right. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. All right, well, today we're going to be finishing John chapter 12. We'll be finishing John chapter 12. And this concludes Jesus' three-year public ministry. And so the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are, are just that. It's uh, 30 years. Well, actually, no, excuse me. It's the last three years of Jesus' life as he's preaching, teaching, doing miracles, healing, various signs. And this is somewhat of a transition point in the book for us. Jesus' public ministry kind of ends at this point, and starting next week, as we pick up in chapter 13, chapters 13 through 16 are what are known as the upper room discourse. And uh, all of this takes place the night before Jesus is to be uh, crucified, and he spends Uh, that time with his disciples. It's a very intimate setting, and I could not be more excited about moving into this new uh, portion of the Gospel of John starting next week. So a little bit of a recap of chapter 12. We know that the chapter began with uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Remember that? With very costly, fragrant oil. And Judas was uh, not happy about that, remember? And so we did a message on the frugalness of Judas. I'm just kidding. It was a little joke there. Uh, No, but Mary anointed Jesus' feet in this awesome act of love and devotion. And then from that point, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, where that day he received the praise and the honor that he deserved. And it went exactly as God determined that it would go. And that's what we talked about. Uh, It happened according to the precise detail and God's exact timing, and absolutely nothing could stop it because it was according to God's unstoppable purposes. Amen? Well, after that, Jesus is, uh, there's a couple of uh, Greek worshipers, we're told, Gentiles, who come seeking Jesus out. And something about that seems to trigger something in Jesus where he recognizes that the end is here. And it, it, uh, he almost kind of launches into this Uh, this teaching about how, you know, it's his time to go, the seed must fall into the ground and die. And uh, we talked about Jesus' death and the victory of the cross. And the last time we were in John a couple weeks ago, that's what we spoke about. We talked about the, uh, the cross would ultimately bring glory to the Father. Remember that? He said, Father, glorify your name. And he said that through the cross, the world would be judged and its ruler cast out, and that through the cross, Jesus would draw all peoples to himself, every tribe, nation, and tongue. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And that, that really did flow so perfectly into what our guest speaker last week had to share, as we had a brother here that was talking about a, a, a trip, a long-term trip that he and his family are about to embark upon in North Africa. And uh, he talked to us about missions and how that's God's plan, that's God's will to draw and to call people to himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so that just married perfectly together with what we had just talked about in John. Well, as Jesus was talking about these things, the people knew what he was saying. They understood. They knew that he was talking about his death. There was no confusion there, but they were confused because they didn't understand how if Jesus really was the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting on, how is it that he was to die? They didn't think that that was in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies of the Christ. And so they were waiting for a conquering king, not a suffering servant. They were waiting for a conquering king. And so these people looked upon Jesus with doubt and suspicion They questioned whether he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, who was to come into the world. And so Jesus urged them not to doubt, but to believe in the light while the light was still with them. While the light was still with them. For there would come a time when they would no longer have the opportunity. The time was short. 
Now, this is a weighty text that we are looking at today. It's not, it's not a, an action-packed, fun-filled message. Uh, there, there is a, a weightiness to it, as I said, because this is the end of Jesus' public ministry, and it is really the ultimate rejection that he gets by the people there publicly before he completes this phase of his mission and turns his attention to his disciples. And so that's what we, we see here today. And it deals with the hardness of the human heart and unbelief and even God's judgment and handing people over to the hardness of heart. Yet it comes with an impassioned plea from Jesus to believe. To believe before it's too late. It's an urgent plea to believe in the light and to walk in the light. And so I've simply titled the message, Walk in the Light. Uh, pretty straightforward. And um, with that, why don't we go ahead and get into our text. And the first point is just that. It's the urgent call to believe in the light. It's an urgent call to believe in the light. Verse 35. Then, uh, then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So just on the front end, I want to tell you, I, uh, I'm going to really bombard you guys with cross-references today because the Bible says so much about light. This is such a thoroughly biblical concept, the contrast between light and darkness. So it's going to be quite cross-reference heavy because I just want to try to bring this together and help us to see just what the Word of God says about this and how it relates and applies to our lives. And as I've already said, this is a concept that is uh, very frequent in the Word of God in light versus darkness. Uh, it, it tends to communicate things like life versus death, like knowledge versus ignorance. If you're in the dark, right, you might say, I, I did not know I was without knowledge, I was ignorant. It tends to communicate holiness versus wickedness, purity versus corruption, it tends to communicate truth versus deception. If you're walking in the light, walking in the truth versus being deceived. And it also communicates hope versus despair. Oftentimes you may hear someone say there's light at the end of the tunnel. What do they mean by that? There is hope ahead. There is, uh, you know, there is reason to keep moving. There is a silver lining. The light will break through. We're familiar with this kind of language. We use it all the time. And the Bible certainly does. And Jesus is frequently associated with the term light. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, darkness is simply the absence of light. And when the light shines into the world, the darkness is dispelled. And the darkness could not overcome the light. It could not overpower for Jesus is the very light of the world. Amen? We know that the world itself is depicted as darkness in the Bible and its ruler, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. He is associated with darkness, wickedness, and deception. So we see the contrast. Jesus came as a light to reveal truth and to expose error to all who are bound by darkness. And that's what light does. Light gives us knowledge of the truth, gives us the ability to see what's going on around us, to be able to walk uh, with, with clarity of vision, but it exposes. It exposes things. And so Jesus came all the while knowing that the world was going to reject the light. The world would reject the light because it, it loves the dark. John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
He came into his own world, but the world that he came to save rejected him. Rejected him because it loved darkness rather than light. And so Jesus gives this one last impassioned plea to believe in the light to the people who are there present. And the people were already expressing their doubt, their suspicion towards him. And then Jesus was hidden from their sight. And that's it. There's kind of that ominous little ending there. Jesus was hidden from them. He, he went his way. That's it. That, that concludes and wraps up his public ministry to the people before he turns his attention in these last hours to his disciples. So what we have moving forward is some commentary that is given to us by the, the author here, the Apostle John. And he explains why it was that the people ultimately did not believe. And then lastly, we'll see the words of Jesus uh, recorded for us by John one last time before the chapter concludes. So with that, that brings us to point number two. So we've seen the urgent plea to believe in the light. We'll talk more about that. But now what we're going to see is the bondage of darkness. Why is it? Why is it that it's so very difficult to turn to the light, to believe, to trust in Jesus? What's going on here? And what we're seeing is the callousness of the hardened heart, the heart that is positioned against God, against His truth, against His Son. And so verse 37, it says, But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in Him. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Now, there are something like 37 major signs recorded in the four different Gospels that Jesus performs. And why does John use the word sign here? That's significant. He could use the word miracles because these are miracles. It is miraculous what Jesus does. But the word sign is there for a reason because it communicates something. It's a marker. It is pointing us to something, right? And what it is pointing us to is the fact that Jesus really is who He says that He is, that He really is sent by God. And Nicodemus even said that. We know that nobody can do the kinds of things that you do unless He's sent by God. And so that's what a sign is. And Jesus performed all kinds of signs. And so many of them, not all of them, but many of them are recorded for us in the Gospels. And in the Gospel of John, we have seven major signs. Seven major signs that John records for us. So just a quick recap. In chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine. Remember that? In chapter 4, Jesus heals the nobleman's son. In chapter 5, Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. It was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And he had the, the few loaves and the fish, and he fed the multitude there. Chapter 6, Jesus came walking on the water to the disciples. Chapter 9, Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. And then, of course, chapter 11, the greatest of all of his signs recorded for us, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead after having been dead for four days and in the tomb. And so John tells us why he specifically compiled these signs. John actually tells us. He gives us his mission statement in John chapter 20, verse 30, and it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So these seven that we just, we just uh, recalled, he said, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And so there it is. That's the purpose. That was the purpose of Jesus performing the signs. That was the purpose of John recording these signs. But John tells us that even though Jesus had done so many signs, the people still did not believe. Isn't that mind-boggling? Doesn't that just blow you away to think that they saw the kinds of things that they had seen, and still they did not believe. You know, I've heard it said there was just widespread healing in the land. It's almost like a picture of what it's going to be like in the millennial reign of Christ. There was almost no sickness, no, no disease left in 
Israel at this time because of all that Jesus had done. Imagine what that must have been like for the people there at that time. And yet, in the midst of all of that, the things they had seen and heard, they still didn't believe. In fact, they rejected. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus. That was their intention. That was their goal. It's not as though they didn't have reason to believe, ample reason. But you know, there's something much deeper going on here. Something much deeper. And that's what John begins to tell us now in verse 38. Look at verse 38. It said, This is the word of Isaiah, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So now John's letting us know that this was actually in accordance to the word of God. God said it was going to go like this. It had already been prophesied some 700 years earlier. This is how it was going to go in Isaiah. Now, he is quoting from Isaiah 53. I don't know if you know anything about Isaiah 53, but that is one of the most, the clearest, most graphic depictions of the suffering of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament next to Psalm 22. And the opening line is, Lord, who has believed our report? And so it's a hypothetical. The answer is virtually nobody. Virtually nobody will believe. Then the question is asked, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What what that question is saying is, is who has seen the power of God? Who has seen the power of God demonstrated? And the answer to that is many people. Many people will have seen the might of God on display through Jesus Christ, through all of the signs and the wonders and the miracles. But who will believe the report? Very few. Very few. Now that was prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 1, and John tells us that this was all in fulfillment of that. This is no surprise. Verse 39. It says, Therefore... They could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, we all know that passage. We love that passage, right? It's the the key passage to the holiness of God. There, Isaiah sees a vision of the the temple, and God is high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple, and and, uh, the, the angels were there around Him crying out, holy, 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 and He said, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. You remember that story? Well, that's what he's quoting right here. And they ask, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go, send me. Now, we love that. We love that verse, right? We, wanna, we want that to be true of us. Lord, here I am, send me. But then what God tells Isaiah his ministry is going to be like is nothing short of depressing. Because he says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, it says, and he said, go and tell this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now that's heavy, as I said. And God told Isaiah, you're going to go but they're not going to listen. They're not going to hear. They're not going to see. And that was by God's design. This was God's judgment against the people of Israel. You see that they had a long history of rebellion against God at this point in the time of Isaiah. They had been known for rampant idol worship, idolatry, worshiping idols, and there's so much we could say about that in the book of Isaiah, they had long hardened their hearts against God and chosen to worship other false gods that were no gods at all. And God was going to essentially 
confirm them in that, harden their hearts, so to speak, hand them over to their rejection of him. And he said, I'm going to send you out, but it's too late. They've already been handed over. They've been confirmed in their rebelliousness, and they will not see. They will not turn. Now, that's something that we see in the Scriptures, and that's a, that's a scary place to be. It's a, the, the Word of God warns us about this very thing, and this is the very thing that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. You guys still with me? Now, this, is, uh, this is kind of, more of a lot more teaching, and it's, it's, it's heavy stuff, but Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul speaking, and he's talking in the context of idol worship. He says, For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give Him thanks. So these were people who had been given enough in creation to know that there was a Creator God. But what did they do? Instead of worshiping the Creator God, they worshiped creation. And so he goes on and says that they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they began to fashion for themselves gods that actually looked more like creation and they were grotesque things. If you see the kinds of idols and things that the pagans of ancient times worshipped, they were gnarly. They were grotesque. Okay, And, and this is, couldn't be more offensive to God that that they would take the glory of the invisible God, the Creator God, and exchange that glory for the image of something grotesque and then worship that instead of God Himself. So what does God do about that? Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them what they wanted. They purposed in their hearts that they would not give God the glory that He deserved, and they gave glory elsewhere, so God gave them up. He hardened them. He confirmed them in their rebelliousness against Him. Now, fast forward. In Jesus' day, the leaders had positioned themselves against God's Son. They had hardened themselves against the Christ, the Messiah, God's beloved. And God was ultimately going to judge them and harden them in their rebellion, just as in the days of Isaiah. Now, one commentator says, it's a sobering reality that those who persistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by Him. The historical record of God's dealing with Pharaoh illustrates that principle. Listen to this. I, I knew this, but I didn't realize just how much. In, the, in this same quote here, he says, noting that ten times Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. Ten times, it says. And ten times we're told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh was a God-hating, God-rejecting pagan and when given, faced with the opportunity to trust and obey, what did he do? He said, who is this God that I should worship him? And he rejected him, rejected him. And God hardened him in that place. God hardened him in that place and then judged him, judged him righteously for it. Chuck Swindoll says that by the end of Jesus' ministry, he successfully divided believers from non-believers, willing hearts from rebellious hearts, and he confirmed each uh, believer in his or her choice. He received willing hearts with grace while hardening others. And by hardening, Scripture declares that he solidified the resolve of each rebellious man or woman to pursue, uh, pursue the evil that was deeply embedded in his or her own heart. And so that's scary. That's scary to think that God could hand someone over, that God would hand someone over and allow them to have their way and then confirm them in it. Let that be a, a warning to us that we would believe. And that's Jesus was saying, believe while the light is here. Believe while the light is here, for there would be a time when the light would be gone. 
And such is the case. We have the opportunity to believe even here and now, but that opportunity won't always be here. There will come a moment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Now, this widespread mass rejection of Christ, the people that were hardened in their rebellion, this would in no way thwart God's plan. It would actually advance it. It would actually advance God's plan. And that's what Romans 11 is all about. We're told that there was a blindness that came over the Jews in part. And that because of this rejection against their Messiah that Jesus would be crucified. And it is through His crucifixion, His death, burial, and resurrection that salvation would be brought to the world. Not just the Jews, but the entire world. And then Paul tells us there will come a time after the fullness of the Gentiles that that blindness will be lifted and then even Israel will receive her king. And then Paul breaks forth in this glorious doxology in the end of Romans chapter 11 as he considers the infinite wisdom of God on display through the gospel. Amen? Amen. And so the hardness of heart, the hardness of heart, only God can break through that. And God does break through that. Amen? Because God is a God who is mighty to save. And He has determined that He would save an innumerable multitude who would give His Son honor and praise and glory into all of eternity as the Lamb who is worthy to receive the reward of His suffering. Amen? But it is nothing less than the mercy and grace of God to break through the obstinate heart. And so we praise God that He is a God who is busy saving, redeeming, calling and drawing people to Himself through His Son. Well, verse 42 continues to expand a little bit on this hardness of heart. It says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, this could sound good to us at first. Hey, even amongst the rulers, perhaps within the priests, the, the priestly camp and some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, there are people who actually believe. And we already knew that with Nicodemus, um, but it's not good news. It's terrible news. Why? Because at best, it's a superficial belief. It was a belief that was in no way willing to pay a price. They weren't willing to, to pay the cost to actually confess Christ publicly. They prized their position, these leaders did. They prized their social status above being found in Christ. Now, this would be an example of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus said that you have to be willing to hate your own life, to hate your life and love Him more than even yourself. These guys did not. They loved their life. They loved their prestige. They loved the praises of men. They loved the accolades from their peers, and they were not willing to cash that in for greater treasures. They were not willing to cash that in to being found in Christ and having a righteousness that comes through faith, right? And so that, let that be a warning to us, and this is just a manifestation of the hardness of the human heart. The heart longs for trinkets, worldly trinkets, and passing pleasures over and above the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this was the hardness of hearts that would ultimately stand in rejection of Israel's Messiah. As Jesus says, believe in the light while you have a chance. So that's John's commentary on the situation. As we move further into the text here, the next point, we're going to see the blessedness, really, of believing in the light. It is a blessed thing to walk in the light, brothers and sisters. And so, I would say to walk in the light and to continue in the light. The blessedness of believing in the light. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And he who sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come as a light into the world 
that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Now, we can't even be sure. It doesn't even tell us. Jesus had already departed, right? He hid himself. John explains why the people rejected Jesus, the hardness of heart. And then all of a sudden, we have these words here that come out of nowhere. We're not even told where Jesus is at this point. And some have said that this is essentially a summary statement of Jesus' ministry here that John gives us. But what he declares here is that if you believe in Him, then you believe in the Father. You have the Father. And that if you believe in Him, you will not continue in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And so I want to kind of park it here for a little bit and, and talk about these things and get a little more practical as we consider what it is to no longer be in the darkness but to now be children of light, to walk in the light. Amen? Well, this first and foremost is true of salvation. Folks, we were, we were slaves to sin, slaves to Satan. We were blind. We were deaf. We were calloused. We were living in complete and total dark. We thought we could see. We thought we were alive, but we weren't. We weren't. We were slaves to this corrupt and wicked world system under the ruler Satan. And in a moment, when we believe in Jesus, the lights are turned on and we realize that what we believed, what we thought we knew was a lie altogether. And all of a sudden, God's Word comes to life. And you see things the way you never saw them before. And you begin to respond to things in ways that you never responded before. You begin to experience conviction over your sin. You begin to experience a love and a passion for God and for others, for His Word. And that is because the light came on. That is because God shined the light in your heart through Jesus Christ and made you new. Born again. Born from above. That is initially what it is to now be in the light. We were in the darkness, now we are in the light through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says this in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are dying, to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So there's the blindness, the satanic blindness, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? The Apostle Paul could pull the gospel out of Genesis chapter 1. I love that. God, who said, let the light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts through the glory and the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. I love that. The lights come on. We were in darkness, now we are in light. We are alive in Him through faith. Paul describes it like this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have received redemption and forgiveness of sins. Amen? So He took us out of the kingdom of darkness and qualified us, brought us into the kingdom of light to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Amen? He has called us from darkness into light. He has saved us through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord who died upon Calvary's cross for us, the one who lived the perfectly righteous life that none of us have ever lived or will ever live, died the sinner's death that He alone didn't deserve, but we all deserved there on the cross in our place as a substitution for us. And He rose again from the grave victorious over death. Amen? And we're told now that if you trust Christ and believe in Him for salvation, you'll be alive forevermore, forgiven, redeemed, brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that is true if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, and bowed the knee to Him. Amen? Well, that's the starting point 
but we're called to continue on in the light. And that's what Jesus, he says that they would continue on. They would no longer remain in the darkness. So there is an ongoing element of walking in the light for us, brothers and sisters. There's an ongoing element. And so just a number of uh, just classic scriptures here that I wanted to share with us regarding this truth. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, brothers and sisters, our God, He is light. There is no corruption, there is no deception, there is no sin, no impurity. He is light. And if we claim to be of Him, it follows that we will walk in the light just as He is in the light. And if we are walking in the light, that is to say that we are living transparent, holy lives, not living in hidden sin, not living hypocritical lives, we're going to walk in the freedom of fellowship with one another. We will have fellowship one with another. You know what walking in the darkness does? Is It causes you to isolate. It causes you to pull back. The one who isolates, Proverbs says, rages against all wise counsel. It seeks his own. And that's a product of walking in the darkness. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to come to the light. There's something that causes us to pull back. You know, I quote that proverb all the time. What is it? The, uh, the wicked man flees when no one pursues. I love that verse. That was me in my old life. You know, just guilty and I knew it and I was forever suspicious and paranoid. I just knew that my phone was tapped and the police were following me. And, uh, you know, just constantly staring out the blinds. I know what, I know what that ice cream truck out there really is right? And that's, that's guilt. That's what, you know, when you're living in the dark, when you're living in the dark, you isolate. And we can't do that. We have to be people who are regularly confessing our sin, walking in the light, drawing close to God, being accountable one to another, and being in fellowship one, with one another. We must be children of light. Amen? Amen? We must be. Romans chapter 13 Verse 11 says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we are to be children of the light. We are to live our lives in the light. We are to cast off the works of darkness and we are to walk properly as in the day. Properly as in the day. I know, I remember what it was to be you know, uh, a creature of the night, if you will. You know, awake all night, out and about, doing my thing at night. And there's something even about that in the physical world that is there. You see the spiritual picture of that, right? That's when uh, that's that's when a lot of you know bad, foul things go down in the dark, in the darkness of night. And so, as the Christian, we're told to live our lives as those who walk properly as in the day. And how do we do that, Paul says? By putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the putting off and the putting on. Putting off and putting on of the Christian life. I used to think that Christianity was going to be like just not doing any of the things that I wanted to do. That's Christianity, right? And so... You know, that's the kind of thing that would keep people away from Christianity. I used to think, one day when I get my life right, then I'll go to church. Right? It's that, that kind of thinking. But Christianity is not that at all. It is a putting off of those old things, but what you replace it with is so much greater, so much sweeter. 
putting on Christ and experiencing the Christian life and the blessedness of having God's favor and God's love and God's provision and being surrounded by God's people and being on mission for the purposes of God and having the hope of heaven that is so much sweeter, being set free from the bondage of sin and darkness and death and corruption. And so we put off the old life and we put on Christ. We replace it. We don't just stop doing what we used to do. We put on the new. And what does Paul say? To make no provisions for the flesh. That's what it is to be a child of the light. We have to be careful that we don't put ourselves in a position to fall. We're good about that. We will often walk right into a trap, right into a snare. But as children of the light, as those who desire to walk properly as in the day, we make no provision for the flesh. And you know what that is. You know what that is. The struggle could be very different for each and every one of us in this room. Don't set yourself up for a failure. Don't go where you know you aren't supposed to go. Don't play around with the darkness, not even a little bit. Don't flirt with it. You know, I remember some of you have heard me tell this story. Years ago, I was a new believer. I always struggled with smoking cigarettes. And uh, as a Christian, I was convicted about that. And as teaching in the children's ministry, I was especially convicted about that. And so I was working for this Christian man, and I decided I was going to chew tobacco one day. I don't know why, but I, I did, and I, it almost made me sick. And I was sitting outside getting nauseous, and my employer saw me, and he, he knew about my past. He knew that I used to you know, have a, a life of drugs and alcohol and all that before Christ, and he thought maybe I was using again. It startled him. He didn't know what was going on with me. And, and so he called me in the office and asked me what's going on, and I told him. I was like, oh, no, no, I was just chewing tobacco, and it made me sick. And he said, well, I thought you were in the, the children's ministry. I said, I am. He said, I thought you were convicted about smoking. I said, yeah, but that's smoking. This is not smoking. It's chewing tobacco. And he said, okay. He said, you know what I would love? I would love to see you teach those kids how to stay as far away from sin as possible, not how to get as close to it as you possibly can without actually doing it. And man, that, I never forgot that. That, that set me straight. And, uh, that, and that's the truth. That's what it is to not make provision for the flesh. Don't live your life as, how can I get as close to sin as I possibly can, yet I didn't actually commit sin, right? That's a, it never works. Can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? He can't. You will be burned every time. And then the fire is consuming, all-consuming. Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says that you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So we are to walk as children of the light. We are to be those who have the fruit of the Spirit and righteousness. I love this verse, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. I want to know what pleases God, and then I want to do it. That's what it is to be a child of the light. That's what it is to get into the Word of God and to get to know this God that we love and serve and to understand what displeases Him so that we can make it our aim not to do those things, but to, to put on and understand what it is to please Him and honor Him and to, to do those things. That's the objective. That's the goal of the child of God who is walking in the light. And it says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose it. You know, we... We have to be careful about the kind of company that we keep. We have to be careful. Again, this kind of ties closely with making no provisions for the flesh. But we have to... What fellowship has light with darkness? And so, yes, God will use us. We want to be a light in the world. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But we have to be careful about the kind of company that we keep. I've heard it said... Sometimes we think we're on, you know, we come to the Lord and we're on mission. I'm ready. You know, sometimes we come out of a very bad background. We come from perhaps a neighborhood that we really shouldn't go back to, right? And um, I remember a guy who was uh, real, you know, bad off on drugs. And 
he got saved and he was ready to go right back into that neighborhood and witness. And he said, man, I'll tell you what, I went back and they were witnessing to me. I mean, he relapsed instantly. And so you gotta, we got to watch that, amen? We have to, now that we are in Christ and we are ch uh, children of the light, he says here that, you know, we need to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, rather expose them. You know, when, if there is, if you have something in your life right now, something that's secret, something that perhaps you're right on the cusp of falling into it, expose it, shine a light on it. I've been in those situations before where I knew that there was some kind of temptation there, and I knew sooner or later I was going to find myself in a moment of weakness, and so I needed to make it known right now to whoever it may concern uh, that, hey, there's this struggle here, and I just want you to be aware, whoever this person is that you trust, it was my pastor, and I said, just so there's not some secret hidden thing here I want you to know. And so we have to expose things sometimes so that there's not a trap or a snare set for us. And then lastly, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are meant to let our lights shine, brothers and sisters. We are meant to walk with God and to have the fruits of the Spirit and to give glory to God and to let the world see the marvelous works of God through our lives. That's why we must be walking in the light, walking in purity, walking in close fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another. Because what the enemy wants to do, what the enemy wants to do, he wants to take us out. He wants to get us bound up in sin and temptation. He wants to render us ineffective so that our light doesn't shine, so that we recoil from the light and go into the dark, so that we break fellowship with one another, and so that we are rendered ineffective for God and His purposes. That's what the enemy wants us to do. But Jesus said, not so for my children. You are the light of the world, and you need to let that light shine, that your God in heaven, your Father in heaven, will be glorified. Amen? we got to let those lights shine, folks. We're children of the light. All right, well, we'll close with this last point. The perils of rejecting the light. If you reject the light, you're going to be judged by the light. Verses 47 through 50. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus came into the world to save the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Amen? Jesus says, however, that those who reject the light will most certainly face judgment. He continues on there in John 3.19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus came to save, not to judge. But make no mistake, there is a judgment that awaits those who reject the light. And the light is His Word, the standard that has been set, the gospel message that has been gone forward, and we will... We will uh, be judged on whether we received God's word or rejected it, whether we received the words of Christ or turned away. Judgment will ultimately be what did you do with the knowledge of Jesus? Warren Wearsby says the word judge is repeated four times in the closing words of this message, and a solemn word it is. Jesus did not come to judge, he came to save. 
But if the sinner will not trust the Savior, the Savior must become the judge. And the sinner is actually passing judgment on himself, not the Lord. The way is set. The invitation is given. It's extended. Believe. Trust Christ. Repent. Be made alive. Be born again. If you reject the invitation, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? For there awaits nothing then but a certainty of judgment. Well, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you have the light of life? Do you have the light of the world? Do you have Jesus? Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And Jesus gives this life to anyone who would believe, to anyone who would call upon His name. I hope and pray that everybody in here today knows the truth, has trusted Christ for salvation. And if there's anyone in here today who has not, the invitation has been extended to you. Call upon the Lord. Ask forgiveness for your sin. Receive His free gift. Receive His mercy. Receive His forgiveness. Turn your life over to Him. Repent of your sins. Put off the world. Put off sin. Put on Christ. Amen? For tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. There will come a point when it will be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Why refuse such a glorious gift? Why refuse? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your infinite kindness that you have extended to us at the cross and your grace and mercy that you continue to bestow upon us day by day as your children. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light as you are in the light. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do it apart from your grace and mercy and your spirit. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. We are not orphans. You have given us your helper, your Holy Spirit, who will give us the ability to do these things. You have called us to do it, and certainly you will empower and equip us to walk in these things. And so, Father, I pray and hope that you have received the glory that is due your name here today. I trust that you have spoken to the hearts, God, in this room from your word, the word that they most needed to hear. And I pray if there's anyone in here today who doesn't know you, but they know that they're being called, they know that you are drawing them, even now, convicting them of their sin, I pray that they would release, that they would let go of their life, and that they would give it to you. That they would simply say, yes, Lord, I want you, I need you, please forgive me and save me. And that they would begin to understand what all that even means, Lord. And so, Father, we, we give you our lives. Help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.